Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine, analyze the sinking of another warship from Russia's Black Sea fleet, and we discuss a powerful new report from Human Rights Watch on the Russian assault on Mariupol. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 14th of February, one year and 354 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and associate director in the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch, Jerry Simpson. I started by going through the latest updates from Ukraine. Let's start in the Black Sea, where the nation without a navy is defeating the nation with a navy. The Ukrainian military have claimed that their Magura V-5 sea drones have sunk a large Russian landing ship off Crimea. In a statement on on Telegram, the military announced the Ukrainian armed forces, together with the Defense Ministry's intelligence unit, destroyed the large landing ship Cesar Kunikov. It was in Ukrainian territorial waters near Alupka, that's off the south coast of Crimea, southeast of Sevastopol, at the time of the hit. Andrei Yusov, a representative of the main intelligence directorate, has told the news site New Voice of Ukraine some more details. He said, There are no concrete numbers yet, but according to the available information, most of the crew died. Yusov also noted that the ship sank and cannot be restored. Ukranska Pravda reported that the ship was, quote, shot down and sunk, publishing several videos showing a column of smoke over the sea off the southern coast of Crimea, as well as helicopters flying overhead. The reporter strike marks the second time in just a month that Ukraine has used its sea drones to sink a Russian ship. That's after it downed the corvette, the Ivanovitz, in the Black Sea in late January. The sinking today, the 14th of February, is also the day the ship's namesake, Cesar Kunikov, a Soviet naval infantry officer, was killed in 1943. Some more international reaction then. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, has put out a statement. He said, The Ukrainians have been able to inflict heavy losses on the Russian Black Sea fleet. This is to a news conference in Brussels. And this is a great achievement, a great victory for Ukrainians. Francis Farrell, a friend of the podcast and reporter at the Kiev Independent, said, When the sea drones first showed up in October 2022, it was fair to think that Russia would eventually find an efficient way to detect and destroy them, like Ukraine did with the Shahids. Fifty months later, that has been proven clearly wrong. Huge achievement for Ukraine. Journalist Simon Schuster, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, made an interesting comment too. He wrote, Not sure how this war can be called a stalemate when this kind of thing keeps happening to the Russians. Any reaction from Russia? Well, so far, the Kremlin has declined to comment, but it has sown discontent among Russian mill bloggers. On Telegram, one wrote, The trouble is that the whole world will laugh. Moving away from the Black Sea, Ukrainian officials have said that Russian missile strikes overnight in Donetsk have left three dead, including a child and a dozen injured. 
The barrage of strikes on the town of Selidove in the eastern region also damaged several apartments and a hospital, forcing 100 patients to be evacuated. This comes from Donetsk Governor Vadim Filashkin. On Telegram, Kilish Vilashkin posted a video of windows blown out, walls torn and rubble inside what appeared to be a medical facility with patients sitting or lying on beds. The strike on a five-storey apartment building injured at least four people, including two children, he also said. Moving on, Ukraine's newly appointed army chief, Alexandra Sersky, has been quite vocal in the past 24 hours. He's stressed he is taking, quote, all possible measures to prevent soldiers' loss of life in an apparent effort to reverse his reputation, which we've talked about on this podcast, for being a butcher. Addressing the situation on Ukraine's front lines as well, Sersky said, we are taking all possible measures to minimise our losses and save the lives of our soldiers. This is the second time in a week the new general has sought to reassure his troops that he's taking necessary precautions. He posted last week that the preservation of our lives of our servicemen remains one of his main priorities. Crucially as well, and we do need to talk about this, uh, Sersky has warned that the situation on the front line is very precarious. This follows a visit to eastern Ukraine with Defence Minister Rustam Merov. He said, The operational environment is extremely complex and stressful. The Russian occupiers continue to increase their efforts and have a numerical advantage in personnel. Speaking to German media, Mr. Sersky said that Ukrainian troops have switched to a defensive posture in an attempt to exhaust repeated Russian bombardments. He said, The purpose of our defence operation is to exhaust the enemy forces and inflict maximum losses by using our fortifications, technical advantages, drones, electronic warfare, and by holding prepared defence lines. He said, Particularly intense fighting is taking place in northeastern Kharkiv Oblast, where Russia's goal is to capture the town of Kupyansk, a key logistics hub. And the final quote from Sersky is, they're attempting to do this at any cost by storming the positions daily. Finally, from me, the UK Ministry of Defence has said that Russia, quote, likely fired its 3M22 Zircon hypersonic missile from an adapted launch system on land, which presents a, quote, significant challenge to Ukrainian air defences. This comes after debris analysis by Kyiv-based scientists yesterday found that Russia launched a 3M22 Zircon missile at Ukraine for the first time at this stage of the war earlier this month. It's the story we led with yesterday, listeners will remember. The MOD said that the absence of vessels known to carry the missiles in the Black Sea likely indicates the Russian land-based K-300 coastal defence system has been adapted for this purpose. This would present a significant challenge to Ukrainian air defences due to its speed and manoeuvrability, the MOD added. Those are all the frontline updates then. Let's go to Francis Durnley. Francis, what have you been looking at? Well, thanks, David. My attention, like so many others, remains on the US today, where debates continue to rage over the fate of the military aid package in Congress and Donald Trump's remarks regarding NATO. Let's start with the president, who has issued a scathing rebuke of Trump's comments, which seem to suggest he would not protect NATO countries who failed to meet their spending commitments were he president again. Biden has branded them as dumb, shameful, dangerous and un-American. He did so in a statement urging the House of Representatives to pass the bill that would send billions in aid to Ukraine. The stakes were already high for American society, he said, before this bill was passed in the Senate last night. But in recent days, those stakes have risen. And that's because the former president has set a dangerous and shockingly, frankly, un-American signal to the world. He called Trump's remarks an invitation for Putin to invade NATO allies and said approving the funding package was a way of standing up to Putin. 
Nevertheless, as discussed yesterday, the funding package is expected to face fierce opposition in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives, with many veteran Washington watchers saying they do not expect it to pass. This is despite the fact that there is a majority in the House to support Ukraine. Yet ever since the bill has become a means for the Republicans to use as leverage over the Democrats on other issues, its progress has been severely hampered. Just to give a sense of how strongly senior Western figures are watching this, Lord Cameron invoked the spirit of World War II to urge the House to pass the bill. Speaking in Bulgaria, the British Foreign Secretary gave a rousing speech imploring the US to continue its support in the face of Russian aggression. Now we face a choice, a simple test, the former Prime Minister said. As Congress debates and votes on this funding package for Ukraine, I am going to drop all diplomatic niceties. I urge Congress to pass it. I believe our joint history shows the folly of giving in to tyrants in Europe who believe in redrawing boundaries by force. It goes to the heart of what both sides of the aisle stand for, what both our countries stand for. We fight aggression. We stand up for freedom. We stick by our friends. We show this dangerous, uncertain world that we are unbending in our will. And we win. As I referenced yesterday, Senator Mitt Romney in the Senate was saying it was the most important vote many senators would ever vote on. As such, it is remarkable to me the degree to which this is not a front page story around the world. But there we are. On the more sceptical side of the debate over the fate of the bill, Elon Musk actually urged Republican senators to oppose the bill on the eve of that critical vote, saying there is no way in hell that Putin could lose the war. This spending does not help Ukraine, he said. Musk was discussing the proposed bill on X spaces with Republican senators Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and J.D. Vance of Ohio, both of whom are sympathetic to Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy, former Republican presidential candidate, of course, tipped to potentially be Mr. Trump's possible vice president, also took part in the discussion, along with David Sachs, a former PayPal entrepreneur and close friend of Musk. Musk agreed with Mr. Johnson that anyone who expected victory for Ukraine is living in a fantasy world before urging we got to kill this thing, by which he was referencing the bill. He also suggested that if Putin backed off from the war, that he would be assassinated and it could lead to an even more hardcore replacement, denouncing accusations that he is a Putin apologist as absurd, arguing that his companies have probably done more to undermine Russia than anything. Now, I don't have time, unfortunately, to critique Musk's arguments here, but this notion that Putin would be replaced by an even more hardcore replacement seems to me flawed in its conception. And even if Putin were, that person's priority would not be engaging in a war abroad, as I've said before, but securing power at home. We look forward to discussing the situation within America and NATO at our event at the US Embassy here in London tomorrow, where we'll be joined by two very special guests with expertise on this very subject. Subscribers to The Telegraph can still sign up to watch that and contribute online at a link in the description. It starts at 6.30 GMT, which is about 1.30 Eastern Standard Time. Now, moving away from the United States, very interesting news coming out of Germany today, namely that it has apparently met the NATO alliance target to spend 2% of its gross domestic product on defence for the first time since 1992. 
The German government is allocating the equivalent of $73 billion for defence spending in the current year, DPA have said. This is a record figure for Germany in absolute terms and equates to 2.01% of GDP. It comes after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz reaffirmed the country's commitment to reach the 2% target earlier this week following Trump's comments that brought the integrity of the NATO alliance into question. At least those remarks by Trump have woken Europe up from its complacency. But the question remains, is it too late? More positive news, though, from the Ukrainian perspective is that the Ukrainian ammunition production grew significantly in 2023, according to its prime minister. The production of mortar shells increased 42-fold last year and artillery shells more than doubled, he announced at a meeting of government officials. We've not been able to verify these stats, but it would seem to tally with what we have been able to read in the last few weeks. We expect a new high in growth in 2024, said Mr Schmeichel. Deregulation, which has already been carried out, will contribute to this, he said. Europe, of course, is also trying to hit its target of giving Kiev a million shells by spring, but it was way behind when we started the year. And just finally, David, moving our attention to the east, the Kremlin has denied reports that Putin proposed a ceasefire in Ukraine to the United States via intermediaries. That's what coming from Reuters. Putin sent signals to Washington in 2023, including through Moscow's Arab partners in the Middle East, that he was to consider a ceasefire in Ukraine, Russian sources reportedly told Reuters. Asked if the Reuters report that Russia had made those proposals, proposals was true, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said, no, it is not true. I can entirely believe, in fact, that Putin made overtures regarding a ceasefire, but I would argue that it means little for all the reasons we've discussed in the past. A ceasefire is arguably a greater asset to Moscow, as it would oblige Western powers to stop donating weapons to Ukraine in order to uphold said ceasefire or negotiations. In that context... A ceasefire or negotiations should be seen as a tactic of war, not of peace. Still, it's quite amusing to see the Kremlin scrambling around to deny this because they know how it will be interpreted, that Russia was vulnerable and looking for a way out. But anyway, that's where we are, David, at quarter past one London time. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for your thoughts and reporting there. It's a, an honour to bring onto the podcast now Jerry Simpson, Associate Director in the Crisis and Conflict Division at Human Rights Watch. We're going to talk about a very long report published between Truthhounds, Situ and Human Rights Watch, all about Mariupol. The title of the report, and we'll put the link in the podcast notes, is, quote, Our city was gone, Russia's devastation of Mariupol, Ukraine. It's a very long report, Jerry. So would you just give us a sense of what it's about and tell us why did you write What are you trying to do? Yes, hello, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the programme. In many of these cases where cities are besieged and attacked, we know from bitter experience all around the world that there are widespread violations of the laws of war that occur. And so we decided to take on the challenge, even though we weren't able to visit the city, to remotely research what happened in the city, to identify which laws of war were breached, and to assess the extent of the destruction that was caused by the Russian assault on Ukrainian forces defending the city. Um, The overall purpose was to make sure that any specific violations of humanitarian law get put in the spotlight to help achieve accountability down the line. 
and secondly, to map out the extent of the destruction, which will then fold into broader advocacy we do about trying to end the world's use of explosive weapons in populated areas, which I can talk more about. And finally, <clears throat> I'll add at the start that we intended and we managed to achieve this to look into which Russian and Russian affiliated units were operating in Mariupol who their commanders were and who up the chain of command would have been controlling the work that they did, as they put it, the assault on the city, in order to potentially identify specific individuals responsible for violations of the laws of war, including possible war crimes. Well, let's briefly speak about the methodology then. How did you compile this? What kind of evidence are you gathering? Human Rights Watch, as you may know, has a traditional approach of trying to anchor all our findings in interviews with survivors and other victims of abuses. And so really at the heart of the report was 240 interviews that we conducted with uh, survivors of specific attacks, witnesses to attacks, people who survived for weeks in horrific conditions in the city as Russian forces besieged it, officials, volunteers, diplomats, members of international humanitarian agencies. And based on those interviews, we then found out and undertook broader research into a lot of issues. So specifically on where those interviews were key, the report maps out 14 attack case studies where we document attacks on specific buildings that killed and injured civilians in which cases and these were cases in which there was no apparent military presence and so we focus in our traditional way on trying to show how those specific attacks breached the specific provisions of the laws of war more broadly we also sought to analyze the extent of destruction caused to the electricity and water infrastructure in the city. So we use satellite imagery analysis to achieve that. Similarly, we use sat imagery analysis to estimate the number of people that were buried in the city's principal cemeteries during the six weeks to eight weeks that the city was besieged and assaulted. Uh, and so using that imagery com combined with other sources, we were able to count graves and estimate graves and uh, you know reached our total civilian, excuse me, our total estimate of the number of people who were buried through that method. Uh, and well, there are many other things I could mention, but maybe the last thing would be we trawled through over 850 videos and photographs that were posted online by various sources. The ones we include in that count, which all of those, yeah, 850, and on which we draw in our conclusions were all, it was all material we verified, whose authenticity we verified. And those images helped us paint a picture of specific attacks on buildings and on the city's infrastructure, the occupation of schools and using schools and hospitals as military bases from which to launch attacks, and a range of other facts that we present in the report. So they're backed up by videos and photos that we found online. Well, thank you very much, Jerry, for explaining all of that. Let's go then to some of your case studies. As you said, the most important part of it, the evidence really is the people who survived who talked to you about what they went through. Uh, I know you've got a couple of case studies you wish to talk us through. So let's start with Irina's grandmother. Can you tell us about Stefania? And we must say, of course, that all these names are pseudonyms. That's right. Because there was a lot of fear amongst interviewees, we found that it was easier not to publish the name of them unless they specifically asked us to do so. And so we ended up... Uh, giving them the pseudonym. So 
Stefania is probably the most striking story that I and my colleagues came across. There is a multimedia feature that we published together with this report. It's an interactive feature that is a way lighter, if you like, read than the 225-page report, which goes into all the technical details. And the feature um, really spotlights her story. It is a story involving the attack on a residential building that served as a shelter for civilians who were trying to avoid getting killed during the assault. Many civilians, thousands of them, were sheltering in the city's basements. These were not official bomb shelters. There weren't, in fact, any official bomb shelters in Mariupol. They didn't exist. So people cowered as best they could in shelters in underneath three, five, seven, nine-story residential buildings. And in one case, we documented an attack destroyed the central part of one of these buildings above a basement where people were sheltering. Through very painstaking research that really took many months trying to combine very many different sources, we established that at least 17 people were killed in that basement. They included a little three-year-old girl called Arena and her parents. And as we trawled through the online posts of relatives looking for their killed or missing loved ones, we found post by Arena's grandmother. She's actually only in her 40s, but she was nonetheless her grandmother. And the posts were you know, desperate, trying to find her. And we finally found a man who was involved in the recovery of bodies from that building, who we interviewed about what he found over the three days that he was part of one of the recovery teams. One of the bodies they found was of a little girl that matched the description of arena that had been posted online. So clothes, age, and bit by bit, we pieced the puzzle together. And it turned out that arena's grandmother, who was desperate to, to find her granddaughter, had ended up going to the city while the Russian occupation was still unfolding. And she started looking for her granddaughter's body. So she went to the bomb site looked through the rubble, took videos, which she sent to us of the bomb site. She went to a makeshift morgue where the recovery teams in the city were taking hundreds of bodies each day at the height of the recovery period. They were exhuming them from makeshift graves that they had dug all around the city in playgrounds, in parks, next to roads, and taking the bodies to this morgue. And Arena's grandmother, Stefania, went to this morgue and repeatedly tried to find out whether her granddaughter's body had been taken there, and if so, which cemetery the body had been buried in, together with thousands of other bodies. It took her weeks and weeks to get some lead, and she finally went to a cemetery where the authorities had said the body was buried. The number on the database for her, grandmother, her granddaughter matched the number on the cross on the grave, but when she reached the grave and looked more closely, she saw a small photo of a different girl that was in that grave. That family, the family of that girl, was also looking for that little girl. And so together they decided to exhume the body of the girl that was in the grave, and it turned out it wasn't Arena's granddaughter. So she spent another four months looking again all over the city, day in, day out for the body, and she finally found another grave where it took her days to get the authorities to exhume the body, and by October 2022, she had managed to find the body, so six months almost after the attack, and then took it home to her home village to bury uh, Arena.
And it's a story that was very difficult to research emotionally. We repeatedly interviewed the grandmother at a distance to make sure we got all the facts right. We tried to triangulate what she told us with the many other sources that we found involved in that case. And it is a very powerful story. And I do encourage readers to to look at the our multimedia feature and go through it. There are videos of the little girl playing in the basement two days before she was killed, videos from the grandmother taken in the attack site, as I mentioned. And it's a very powerful story to give people some idea of the suffering that the civilians went through in the city. I know that Francis will have questions as well, but could you give us one more case study that you've been looking at? Tell us about uh, Wagen, the gravedigger. Yes. So Vaughn was an extraordinary man. He is somebody who had been working previously as a, um, he was the head of the city's ecology and energy management department, had been there for many years. He realized at one point that the city had no system in place to collect and bury the dead. Um, His father had died on the 5th of March. So that was about 10 days after the assault started of an apparent heart attack after he'd witnessed a nearby artillery attack. And when Vaughn tried to bury his father, he found that there was no functioning system, unsurprisingly, to collect and bury the dead. The city was under full siege. The Russian and Russian forces were still on the edge of the city, mostly and bombarding the city center. And so unsurprisingly, there wasn't a system in place. Uh, Vaughn... told us that he went to the morgue where his father's body was. And as he said, there was no electricity, none of the refrigerators were working. And he said, I'll remember the smell all my life. And the image of what I saw was just terrible. And he realized people needed some dignity in death. And so the deputy mayor asked him to help them. And he quickly volunteered, mobilized six teams, and they found a plot of land in the city's old city cemetery in the center of the city where they could bury bodies. On the first day that the volunteers got together, the office in which they were locating located was shelled, and one of the people was injured, but the teams nonetheless decided to continue with their effort. They dug two trenches, and on the third day, while they were putting dozens of bodies in the trench, a mortar attack hit 50 meters from the first trench they buried. And the only solution they had was to jump inside the trenches onto and underneath the bodies to protect themselves. You can imagine the horror that they had to go through as they waited for the attack to pass. Again, nonetheless, they continued their work. They closed that trench, went to a different location, dug new trenches. But before they could then bury the dozens more bodies they collected, by the March of 15th, the office where they had their daily coordination meeting was again attacked. And Vaughn was wounded in the right side of his body, in his ribs and his arm. And he realized he desperately needed medical attention, that the situation was too dangerous for him and his family, and he escaped. And with his escape, the entire attempt to bury bodies during the siege, that is through till April 20th, more or less, collapsed. And that was the end of the attempt to give the dead people of Mariupol some dignity. Jerry, thank you so much for taking us through those stories. Before we bring in Francis, who I know has questions of his own, what would the what, can you talk us through some of the conclusions you reached through, through this report? Yes, certainly. There are quite a few, so I won't go through all of them. But I would just to highlight the the main ones. 
taking a, a bird's eye view, we it was impossible for us to do a detailed damage assessment of the entire city. The city had previously housed 550,000 people. And so we focused on one specific area, about 14 square kilometer area in the city center that broadly um, envelops the city's main central artery, which is called Peace Avenue, which the Mariupol city center crowns on the eastern end. Your listeners may remember the attack on the theater in the city in the middle of the assault. And we found that more than 4,800 buildings in that particular area, including almost all of the area's 477 high-rise apartment buildings, were damaged. Our broader assessment of the city also found every single one of the city's 19 hospital campuses was damaged, and 86 out of the 89 schools and universities we were able to identify were also damaged. We are presenting this damage assessment as part of a global campaign that Human Rights Watch is part of to encourage countries all over the world to sign on to a new declaration that was signed in November 2022 that seeks to limit and, in fact, stop completely the use of explosive weapons in populated areas, which basically means not using artillery strikes, airstrikes, and other air-dropped weapons in highly populated areas, where even if you think you're trying to target a military target, you're very likely to kill a high number of civilians and damage crucial civilian infrastructure, that's to say residential buildings, hospitals, schools, and so on. So this, our findings are going to be deployed as part of our global advocacy on that issue. The two other things I'll highlight, you know, the if people are interested in the details, it is worth looking at some of the case studies of specific attacks where we interviewed witnesses and survivors to attacks that killed civilians in buildings where there were no apparent military targets. So no Ukrainian military presence, no military base of any kind. Of course, Ukrainian forces were in the city defending it against the assault. And of course, they didn't just all disappear to the edges of the city. So they were in the city. So we took great care to identify cases in which there was clearly no evidence of Ukrainian military presence and in which we then you know, go through our usual methodology to establish attacks that were unlawful. And then finally, I would just mention the section where we have a very detailed outline of the 17 Russian and Russian-affiliated military National Guard and National Guard units that were operating in the city. We name those units. We name the 10 senior Russian commanders, including President Putin, who were in charge of those units in one way or another. And our report calls for President Putin and other senior officials to be investigated and appropriately prosecuted for their role in, in laws of war violations, including, in some cases, possible war crimes. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. Francis, what questions do you have? Thank you very much for your time today, Jerry, and for all of your team's work on this extraordinary and important report. Uh, I just want to start on that very subject you were just speaking about, which is this issue of those who are responsible for the actions you've just described there. And I'd like to quote from your report, if I may. You say that reparations should be paid to the victims and their families. Concerted international efforts towards justice and accountability are crucial to demonstrate that unlawful attacks carry consequences, to deter future atrocities and to reinforce the principle that accountability for grave crimes cannot be eluded because of rank or position. Two years into the war and thinking long term, how optimistic are you that that will indeed be possible? 
If you look globally all around the world at conflicts where we and other organizations have identified people who we believe are responsible for specific crimes or who are very likely responsible for those crimes because of their presence in a specific area or in a specific city at this particular time, there are very few prosecutions either in the countries where those people come from unsurprisingly, because the governments to whom they report usually stay in place. And obviously, they're not going to prosecute their own forces or only in very rare cases. In some democracies, does that happen? And there are, of course, cases in international tribunals, such as the International Criminal Court or other regional international justice mechanisms, where people are tried, where suddenly somebody gets arrested and transferred to one of these international judicial jurisdictions. However, those cases are few and far between. And the one judicial mechanism I think it's worth highlighting for your listeners that they may, may not be aware of is that under the principle of universal jurisdiction, any country, so let's start with the UK, any country can draw up a list of people it believes are or may be responsible for laws of war violations, including war crimes or crimes against humanity, and can arrest those people the moment that they step foot on UK soil. They can then investigate them, and if enough evidence is present, they can charge them and then prosecute them in a court of law and then imprison them if they're found guilty. So these universal jurisdiction cases are mushrooming all around the world, but in particular in Europe. And there are many examples where people have been arrested unwittingly going on a shopping spree or taking their holiday, their family on holiday only to find themselves in a cell in, in, a, in, in their holiday destination, never to leave again in some cases. And so if there were to answer your question in a simple phrase, if I had hope for one type of justice, it would be that at some point, some of these officials will go to the wrong place at the wrong time where there is a list and they'll end up in a prison cell and charged in a local, in a local jurisdiction far from home. Thank you. Yes, because as the report lays out, it's not just the big wigs like Vladimir Putin that you've identified here. These are people who are quite feasibly able to travel around and, as you say, find themselves in that situation. I'd like to also ask you about process, if I may. I was really interested in what you were saying about the process of the number of people you talk to, over 240 individuals. When you're recording that testimony, we've had people on the podcast in the past talking about that and, you know, in, in the, the requirements to make sure that it is legally watertight as well as ethically so. Just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you identify people and the sort of the hour by hour, minute by minute way in which you actually interview these individuals and do it in a way that perhaps is recording things for history as well as being for this report specifically. Yeah, that's a great question. I'll answer from a personal perspective on this, but it is something that applies to our methodology across the board at Human Rights Watch. But I'm originally a solicitor from London. I trained in a human rights firm in, in North London and spent a number of years taking very detailed witness statements from, you know, in many cases, refugees and asylum seekers, but also criminal cases and civil litigation cases. So I know broadly what a court of law what a defense lawyer, let's say, or what the prosecution will ask of the other side in these cases. And so when we do interviews, we try as best we can. And that's hard when you're not in front of the person for many hours, like you, you have in the luxury of a London solicitor's office. We try as best we can to go into tremendous detail with the witness about what they saw, heard, concluded, 
what they survived. Many times people are, of course, profoundly traumatized. So it requires a specific set of skills through training to interview people in an appropriate way. And we try and establish a relationship of trust, which enables the person to be comfortable with a number of interviews. It's clear that in many of these cases, we can't reach conclusions on the basis of one or two or three hour interviews. We have to go back again and again to check on gaps, to check on contradictions, to figure out what in fact happened, especially as witnesses will often give information that seems erroneous, but it's just because they're confused or tired or traumatized. And it's clear that in some cases, the information doesn't always add up. And if that happens, we don't use the information. We take a wholly independent approach to this material, whichever country we're in, whoever the perpetrator is, whether it's witness testimony about British soldiers committing abuses in Iraq, or whether it's witness testimony about Russian forces committing abuses in Ukraine, or Hamas attacks in Israel, or Israeli airstrikes in Gaza, we use the exact same methodology trying to get to the detail, trying to make sure that we have reliable material that we can stand behind confidently when we publish it. That's very interesting. And what about it being recorded for posterity? Will these one day be unlocked for people to be able to use for their own research purposes? Well, let's give you a concrete example. If, well, and we have these cases, if the International Criminal Court were to arrest one of the suspects for the crimes committed in Mariupol um, and approaches us for information about a specific case, a specific bombing of a building that it is looking into as part of its prosecution procedures, they may well call us as a witness. Then a very set of complicated procedures kick in. But if we do agree, and if we are called or forced even in some cases to go against because we may be nervous about certain consequences for the witnesses or so on, but it could well be that we're told that we have to appear, we have to bring forward all our documentation, photos, interview notes, final interview transcript, everything can be admitted in court. And so we keep it obviously in a safe place. But more importantly, during the research, we have that in the back of our mind. So we imagine that this particular interview may well get introduced into evidence in a court of law one day. And we do the research and treat the material accordingly. That's very interesting. And I wanted to ask about this: why Mariupol? I mean, obviously, the reasons why Mariupol are obvious. But when you're thinking about the whole conflict, did you pick Mariupol because you felt that it was the place where you could get the most testimony or did you see it as symbolic of something that has been perpetrated by the Russians? I'm interested in what your decision process was and whether you've got other reports on the way, other investigations ongoing in the Ukraine context. Well, Human Rights Watch has investigated many attacks in Ukraine since the outbreak of the the war on the 24th of February two years ago. And you'll find them, of course, all on our Ukraine webpage. Um, Some of them involve very specific attacks. For example, we have a report on the attack on the Krematorsk train station, where from memory, I think it was 56 people were killed. 
waiting to evacuate from the area. And with 3D modeling and videos and so on, we recreate the train station. And the moment of the attack, we look at the damage signature of the weapon. That's to say the, the, the splatter, the fragmentation splatter on the train platform to try and identify the weapon and which direction it came from. So we go into these very detailed studies on specific attacks in specific places that killed dozens or in some cases, hundreds of people. Mariupol is an example of a daunting example of where we're faced with a situation where clearly we knew thousands of people were dying. And it is easy in those situations to throw your hands up in the air and say, this is just too much. It's overwhelming. We can't get there. Too many crimes are being committed all over the city. Where do we begin? And so we just, as a matter of principle, decided this attack can't go unrecorded. There should be some attempt at least telling part of the story. Of course, no one could ever tell the whole story of what happened in that city over those eight weeks. But to tell part of that story within a clear legal framework and to do our best to make sure there's some record of what happened in that city as one of the single most horrific parts of this conflict. Thank you. And one final question from me, which is on this subject of children. You spoke very movingly about one case of a child who was killed in Mariupol. Can you talk a little bit more about other such examples of war crimes committed against children and also perhaps more generally as with your knowledge of the conflict, your reflections on what we've seen happen to children and whether you've seen enough being done by the international community to try and raise awareness of that issue? This report doesn't have many examples where large numbers of children were killed in one specific location. Many of the 14 attack case studies that we present in the report involve the death of children together with their parents or other caregivers. And the information we were able to obtain doesn't allow us to tell very detailed stories about who the children were, what their lives were like before, and paint a more detailed picture about their personalities, which is what we generally do try and do when we have access to lo- to locations where abuses have committed and we have that information to hand. We do try and put forward those stories of specific children. But this report is not one where we were able to do that in, in any great numbers. In terms of your question of whether the United Nations or other countries could be doing more to protect Ukrainian children, I think that really is something, you know, the Ukrainian government is in a position to (laughs) ensure that kids are evacuated from dangerous locations as soon as danger arises. And I think it's the Ukrainian authorities are pretty well organized in that respect. And I don't think children are disproportionately impacted compared to adults amongst casualties in cities when airstrikes and other artillery, other attacks take place. So I'm not sure the Ukrainian conflict is the main place to look in that respect. The one issue that has arisen since the beginning, as you may know, is the forcible transfer of civilians from places like Mariupol uh, and other parts of Southeast Ukraine to Russia. And we've written a report on that from, I think it's from June 2022 on forced transfers, if people are interested. And, you know, UNICEF does a lot of advocacy with the Russian authorities to try and get more information about the number of children that were transferred to Russia under those procedures. I have to say there is still a lot of uncertainty about the facts relating to those transfers. Russia isn't particularly cooperative, as you might imagine. But I can tell you that issue is square on the agenda of the UN. 
Jerry, thank you so much for your time. We'll come back to you for a final thought, but it's hugely appreciated by us and by our listeners, the level of detail you've been able to go into today. So thank you very much. As I said, we'll come back to you shortly. Coming up, I ask Francis and Jerry for their final thoughts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Francis Sternley, would you like to share your final thoughts? Well, thanks, David. Really great to talk to Jerry about this important subject today. And I do really recommend listeners to read the report, or at least its summary, because it's, well, it's sobering. I want to return to America for my final thought, though, and an interesting read by the historian Niall Ferguson, who's written a piece for Bloomberg called If You Think World War Three Is Unimaginable, Read This. Its central thesis is that America, in contrast to other nations, is unable to imagine meaningful defeat, which impacts her. He paints conceivable future historical scenarios, such as Russian troops marching into Kiev or Iran successfully building a nuclear weapon and unleashing its proxies in Lebanon to rain missiles down on Israel, and posits that the current default US position would be in those scenarios to equivocate and try not to escalate, as of course we saw in the early weeks of the war in Ukraine. As he writes... The only explanation I can find for this is that Americans deep in their hearts do not think that defeat applies to them. He explains this as being the product of America's size and power and also the absence of popular literature that imagines it as conceivable in contrast to other European countries. As an aside to that, it's interesting that the great enemy in many Hollywood films is Mother Nature or Little Grey Men. It's almost never another military power like China. He goes on. Under certain circumstances, imagining defeat can sap your morale. But it can also focus the mind on the burning imperative not to lose. Ukrainians have no difficulty imagining what defeat would mean. They have seen the bodies strewn in the streets of Bucha after the Russian execution spree. They know the horrors of which Putin's colonial army is capable Likewise, most Israelis understand only too well that victory for Hamas and its backers would be the prelude to a second Holocaust. If you don't open your eyes and open them wide to the plausible scenario of defeat right now, then you run the risk of one day having to do precisely that. So it's an interesting read, David. We'll add a link to the description. And just one final word on this theme. Whilst I totally understand the mentality that America can theoretically isolate itself from the rest of the world. It certainly has the power to do so. And when we're talking about defeat, what we're meaning here really is something that is existential. It should be because America has faced 
military defeats, obviously, in the last um, few decades. It should be under no illusion, I think, the symbolic power that America holds and the consequences of that. For as long as there are enemies of freedom, America will have enemies and it will not be able to ignore them, even if it would like to, as we saw in 20th century history. Such are the obligations of power. But no doubt a theme we'll return to later this week, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Jerry, I know you have to go, but if you'd be able to share just a very final thought from you, we'd be hugely grateful. Yeah, I think the one takeaway from the report is that when you see situations that just seem completely overwhelming, and there are, there are obviously a few going on in the world at the moment, where armies and other armed groups are indiscriminately attacking civilians and military targets alike, leading to widespread war crimes, you know, there is the possibility down the line sometime of at least accountability for one or two or three senior people. This is, we've seen that work in many contexts. And I think the wheels of justice are sometimes very slow, but we can collect facts. We have the technology, we have the legal training, we have the legal knowledge, we have the skills and teams And thanks to donors, we have sometimes enough funding to do the job properly. And it's important not to lose hope and to believe that down the line, justice will prevail for at least some of the victims. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.